Hello and welcome to episode 6 of Bitcoin and Markets, a show where I discuss Bitcoin, geopolitics, and liberty. Today, I give you some updates to previous stories and some new headlines, and then I cover the oil industry in depth, especially some recent events and what Bitcoin can learn from that. My name is Ansel Lindner. Thanks for listening. Let's get going. All right, guys, welcome back to the show. Today we're going to start off with some headlines and some updates, and then we're going to roll into the main story. So our headlines, uh, well, let's start out with updates. So we have an update to the Japanese story. And if you listen to my previous episodes, you'll notice this is kind of a theme that I I think Japan is going to play a major role. They are in big-time trouble with their demographics. Um... They're going to play a major role in the world economy and in the Bitcoin economy. So so the Japanese update is uh, Shinto Abe. They recently had a G7 meeting in Japan. And he wanted to push the narrative or get people on board with this idea. He made a presentation that there were... Global economy is in dire straits. We're headed screaming towards another type of Lehman event, and uh, you know he he had a lot of data to to support that, um, but that didn't go over too well. I mean that that's the narrative he wanted to come out of the G7 meeting, but that is not what the rich country club what the official statement was. Uh, the official statement was something like this: the world economy is generally strong there are a few systemic risks but the world economy is generally strong Uh, totally not what Abe is saying he's saying we're in dire straits and he knows it I mean right after this G7 meeting uh, there was planned uh, tax uh, increase large tax increase for next year start of next year he's now delayed that it was kind of an austerity measure in a way for Japan because they are currently at 30% of the government debt is owned by the Bank of Japan. And in four years' time, it's going to be over 60% of the government debt is owned by the Bank of Japan. They're monetizing their debt at a very, very fast rate. So this... Uh, Tax, tax increase was supposed to be a somewhat of an austerity for Japan. But they can't handle it. Their economy can't handle it. So now uh, Abe has pushed it back for two and a half years. And we'll see. If, if you did listen to my other podcasts, you'll know that uh, I made the case for Japan to be pushing Bitcoin in the future. Which I think, you know, it, it all pivots around this young generation. It's a very small generation. The demographics are are horribly skewed. Um, The millennials are looking at uh, long-term slavery to the older class, to the boomers in Japan. Um, If I were a young person in Japan, 
I would see that and I wouldn't want to start a business. I wouldn't even want to work that hard because uh, probably, I mean, the, the lowest tax rate you're looking at in the future is 50%. And I could just move out. I could go work in Singapore or Hong Kong or even South Korea and not have to deal with these horrible taxes and demographics that are coming down the pike. So Japan has some major, uh, rea a major reality check coming, and I think Abe knows that, and that's why he's trying to push the global economy to, or the global players to get on his, his uh, narrative, which I think is the correct narrative, by the way. All right, so that's Japan. Let's go talk about the UK a little bit and uh, the steel tariffs that I brought up as well. That is, I want to put it into a context of. The Brexit vote. The U.S. raised tariffs on China. China retaliated, but not in the way you would think. Not by retaliating against the U.S. industry. What they did was they raised tariffs on electrical steel made in the U.K. I think something like 90% of the world's electrical steel is made in the U.K. And most of their steel is, uh, or most of their entire industry is dedicated to that type of steel production. Well, the, China wants to get in on that and have their factories start, or their plants, foundries start making that. So uh, they put tariffs on the UK and they blamed it on the US. And that puts tension between the UK and the US. Because the UK will blame China, or sorry, blame the United States for China's actions. It's a very simple, simple thing, but it was a, a masterful geopolitical move. And now the, the UK is stuck between their home industry, supporting their home industry, and the EU and their regulations and the, their alliance with the United States. So the EU has these safeguards put in place so that they can't have tariffs. They can't have, uh, unilaterally protect their industries. I think there's some wiggle room in there. Some industries are protected like wine in France or something like that. But for, in general, a heavy industry I don't think has these protections. And so you cannot unilaterally uh, subsidize or protect your home country's uh, steel industry. Well, you're boxing the UK in. So now thousands of these steelworker jobs, solid blue-collar jobs, are going to be going away because of the U.S. trade war with China and the UK's inability to subsidize their home industry. Um, I think that will start playing more into this Brexit talk, and we'll see how that plays out. But, um, you know, if this becomes a, a big issue... It could, it could be a pivotal issue in the Brexit. All right, so let's talk about the Dow. There's been a few developments in the Dow. I just want to keep my listeners up to date on it. They now have started taking proposals. They've gone live, and um, there's a few out there. Uh, the, one, the biggest one is proposal number five, and that is the moratorium one. Uh, has about 4% of the quorum, or 4% of voting participation rate. So uh, that would be about uh, 
20% of the quorum needed. And the next closest uh, has 1% of the quorum or God, 1% of voter participation. It's, it's, I don't know exactly how to describe that, but the, the moratorium is the only one that looks like it's going to pass at this point. And my interest in this whole moratorium process is I, I was thinking the other day that what if a bunch of people decide to split after this happens? I mean, this moratorium is going to freeze these people's funds, basically. Uh, and they're, they're not going to be able to do these cool DAO things that they want to do. So are, are some people going to split? Are there going to be you know, up to a 50% split? And can that happen? I mean, I know, I'm pretty sure it can happen. It's just a, a new curator proposal that 50% of the people say yes to. Right, and so you leave the old DAO with the moratorium on it, and you switch to a new DAO with a new set of curators. And my my concern is the fungibility of those coins. So they're being traded now on Poloniex and other markets, and and what happens if the there's two DAOs, major DAOs? I mean, already now you can see the splits out there, and the splits that are out there right now they there's uh i counted up yesterday something like 130,000 dow tokens are now committed to splitting in up to four or five different dows and how are those now fungible versus dow tokens that are still on the main dow i don't think they will be fungible but what if there's a major split a major curator change a 50/50 split that, that's a question I don't see being asked out there, and I, it's a very valid question. I mean, there is going to be no fungibility if most of these people start splitting off. And within a year's time, we can see how those small splits will add up to big numbers. So over a year's time, we might have 75%, 50 to 75%, let's say, people split off the main DAO. How is, and it's, it's, you have incentive to split earlier because the Dow's going to pay Slocket all this, these millions and lose your ether. So anyway, if anybody knows those questions or answers to those questions, please, uh, answer them on Twitter or something. That'd be great. I'm still learning. So, all right, let's do some rapid fire, uh, headlines here. Ant pool. They are, they were the largest ant, uh, the largest mining pool at one point. They came out a couple weeks ago and said that they are not going to be supporting segregated witness until there is a, a hard fork. Well, they proceeded to lose a bunch of the market share, uh, dropping pr maybe, well, over 7-8% and losing it to F2 pool. Now, F2 pool has nearly 30% of the previous blocks over the last four days, so you can see that Maybe people are moving from Ant Pool to F2 Pool for Segwit. I don't know. That's a developing story. We'll have to see where that goes. Mycelium fundraise is over. Uh, they were, I think coins are now distributed. They, it's this whole story with the Mycelium wallet and why they had to raise money. It's a shame. It really is a shame. They had, they couldn't, uh, ask for donations or or build in an automatic donation thing into their app 
or else they couldn't be on the uh, the the Google Store and the uh, Apple Store. So they had to they have to have some way to raise money or make money, right? And it's just a shame that they that this is what they came up with. That there's not a better way. I mean, I like the I like Mycelium, and I think they are good guys. So it the whole thing is is sad. I wish them luck. I hope they are successful and don't go to jail. So. Alright, last rapid fire I have here is Coindesk. They have gone full blockchain retard. That's, I mean, that's where the news is. They're not reporting on Bitcoin. It's all blockchain. I just went to their homepage, which I haven't done in a long time. But I went to their homepage and it, I did a search, uh, control F for, to search for the word Bitcoin. And on Coindesk, they're on the front page, there were only six mentions of Bitcoin, they had a lot, I mean, blockchain was mentioned in every single headline. So it was, the term blockchain was on there probably 50 times, and the words distributed ledger were probably on there more than Bitcoin. I mean, I don't really blame them. That's where the news is. All these people are trying to, I mean, it's just like the altcoin boom from 2012, 2013. All these altcoins came out and people were jumping in on the altcoin bandwagon and now they're jumping in on this blockchain Ethereum bandwagon. It's the same thing, except this time it's bigger players. I mean, it's big money that's doing this, but it's the exact same thing. Um, I mean, they want to be the Bloomberg of Bitcoin. So the home of, I don't know how to put this, the home of, it's the big big company friendly media outlet i mean if i were if i were a multi a billion dollar corporation and i wanted to write some pr i would send it to bloomberg because bloomberg is my friend if i'm a big one of the big corporations and i think that's what coindesk is trying to position themselves as they want to be where r3 sends their press releases they want to be the place where um Morgan Stanley sends the blockchain, or Bank of Japan, or Russia, whoever, where they send their press releases for these blockchain things. That's, I mean, it's, it's a good business strategy for the, for the next couple years, but it's not at all a news place. I mean, it is, it is just a PR platform for these big companies and stuff like that. All right, let's get into our major story here, and that is the oil market. I want to try to paint a picture for you guys on what I think is happening. It's a little conspiracy land, but you know there's a lot of facts to back this up, and it fits a it fits into what we know about certain countries and certain markets, the importance of them. So where should I start with this? Let's start on let's go with prices. So back in 2008, 2000, yeah, 2008, we hit an all-time high in oil of $140 a barrel, and it crashed during the the last recession. 
and it slowly worked its way up and it spent a lot of time between 80 and 100. And that was right where Saudi and Qatar and, and some of those Gulf nations, they came out and they said, yeah, $80 a barrel is where we'd like to keep it. It's not too much. It's not too little. And it keeps a lot of the shale or the fracking stuff from happening. Well, as it started creeping up and spending more time over 100 and, and that uh, shale production became more profitable, uh, we things that the price turned around we had an oil glut uh, oversupply of oil and it started down right around the time that um well that happened in 2013 and then it really heated up at the end of last year in 2015 it started diving so it spent time in the 40s and 50s and then it started diving down again at the end of last year and it spent january and february just approaching this bottom of about and it stopped at 26. Well, what, what made it stop? There's been multiple events that have happened that I want to walk through here. So in February, we start hearing talks of this oil production freeze. So countries, oil producing countries would freeze their production at current levels. That would allow the uh, economies to grow and catch up to the oil production. And then prices would slowly increase from there. That was the, that was the thought process. And if you'd listen to the mainstream media, it was a done deal. All these, it was basically signed. But that wasn't the case. Um, it slowly started falling apart. Russia came out and said, yeah, we'll freeze. But in February, we just added, you know, 10% more production. We're going to freeze at that higher level. And slowly but surely, these things started falling apart. Another loophole they had in there was that production was frozen, not exports. So if domestic, like say in the United States, domestic consumption was going down or is going down, then production is frozen, well, exports have to increase. And that was happening all around the world, Russia and the Gulf countries. The... the Nail in the coffin was when Saudi said, well, if Iran's not going to do this deal, we're not going to do this deal. And that really wasn't the reason why it fell apart. It fell apart because it was a bad, a bad deal. But it, that was kind of like a, a jab right at the bell of Saudi, right at Iran. So that really didn't have much to do with it. Yeah, so when that's falling apart, we start seeing other things happening in the world if if you are paying attention to some of this news you have to look for it you have to search for this stuff but it's there one of the things i want to draw attention to is nigeria nigeria is a major oil producer in africa really you have libya and nigeria and i think nigeria produces more oil i don't know they definitely have a bigger population i think they're the most populous country in africa their economy is very dependent on oil, and they've had a lot of domestic problems lately. So let's bring up this article. Dun, 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 dun. There it is. Okay. Now this article is in is from Stratfor. They're a global intelligence type firm where they they do a lot of um, geopolitical information. I've, I've read it for many many years. Uh, they 
they have some bias towards statism and stuff, but they, they have a lot of good information. They have more quality information than the mainstream media, obviously. So this is kind of, uh, I, I would consider it mainstream media, but it's information dense. So they have an article here from a couple, uh, let's see, May 17th, 2016. And they're talking about, the title is, The Niger Delta Avengers, Motives Are a Mystery. That's <laughs> There is a group called the Niger Delta, Delta Avengers. It sounds like a comic book or something, but that's what, that's what they're called. And let me, I'm going to read this article to you guys, so bear with me here. A new militant group has emerged and is quickly gaining notoriety in the Niger Delta. The Niger Delta Avengers rose to global prominence after claiming responsibility for two attacks in May. First, the group bombed a Chevron facility off the coast of Escavos on May 4th. Just over a week later, another explosion occurred at Chevron's Nigeria Limited Maracaba line oil facility in Wari, which is also in Nigeria. In the wake of the attacks, Shell and other area operators <clears throat> excuse me, have withdrawn personnel, shutting down facilities and plunging Nigeria's output to levels not seen since the early 90s. So up to this point, that sounds okay. I mean, we know there's a lot of militant groups here in this part of Africa. They, they have uh, domestic problems right now. There's lots of domestic violence, people vying for control of the government. Um, so it makes sense, but it starts falling apart here. Beyond the Niger Delta Avengers' flare for chaos, little is known about the group, which conceals its members' identities. After a Nigerian military commander said the group hails from Garabatu Kingdom in southwest local government area, in the southwest local government area, military forces moved into the region in the hopes of disrupting any plots. But Nigerian officials are still struggling to find out who the Niger Delta Avengers are and even former Niger Delta militants do not seem to know. So, um, yeah, they, they got reports that it was, they were headquartered in a certain area. They went there, they couldn't find them. They don't know anything about them. Even other militants, other Niger Delta militants from the area, so other mercenaries and things like that, they don't know who these Niger Delta people are, the Niger Delta Avengers. They don't know who they are. They're mysterious. Sounds a little fishy to me. Reading on, mysterious as it is, the group has proved a menace to production in the Niger Delta region, recalling the havoc that the moment for the emancipation of the Niger Delta, the M-E-N-D, caused less than a decade ago. The Niger Delta Avengers have demonstrated a surprising level of prowess, executing well-planned attacks on strategic targets. On May 12th, the group issued a two-week ultimatum, promising further strikes if Nigerian President Buhari did not accede to his political demands. The, threats, the threat will only add to the Nigerian oil and gas industry's considerable woes, including low oil prices, accidental leaks, and damaged pipelines. But since roughly one-third of Nigeria's oil production occurs far offshore in the Gulf of Guinea, most of the country's oil appears to be safe from peril, at least for now. So, that last paragraph, they, 
not only are these people unknown, even to the other militants, even to the other mercenaries in the area, nobody knows who these people are, yet they are very well trained. They, they uh, demonstrate, quote, a surprising level of prowess, executing well-planned attacks on strategic targets. So not only do they have good training, but they know they have good intelligence. They know where to strike, when to strike. And these people are not known to the area. They're not known in Nigeria. Yet they call themselves these Nigeria Delta, or sorry, Niger Delta Avengers. Very, very weird. And to me, this fits the MO of the United States, doesn't it? Arming the Mujahideen. Arming ISIS. Funding ISIS. Funding all of these terrorist groups. Funding the Orange Revolution in the Ukraine. Taking down governments this way. Even some would say backing the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and Tunisia and in uh, definitely in Libya there was stuff going on. So this definitely fits the MO of the United States. And these people are unknown to the area. Nobody knows who they are and how they got this training, how they got all these weapons, how they know where to strike, when to strike. It's We can say something for sure that it's not locals. So the two, two options I see are that it's state-backed or these big oil companies are doing it to themselves on purpose so that they can, the oil price will go up. And this happened, remember, this happened right as these uh, production cut talks were breaking down. Everybody knew they weren't going to happen. Something needed to be done. Enter Nigeria, the Niger Delta Avengers to take care of that. But if this weren't enough, there's at the exact same time up in Canada, Northern Alberta, shale country, there were two sets of fires. One of them was a big trestle bridge, you know, one of those big wooden railroad bridges. And they, it was set on fire and they caught the arsonist and everything. That happened, uh, I think, late April. Then just a week later started this Fort McMurray fire. Millions and millions of acres burned. Fort McMurray was a city of about 90,000 people, most of them employed by the oil and gas industry. I mean, this was the heartland of shale production in Canada. And this fire comes in and destroys all of this capacity. Now, on May May 9th, 10th, and 11th, there was this building um, kind of investigation. On the 9th, they said it could be arson. On the 10th, they said it's definitely arson. And then on the 11th, they uh, said, yeah, they have some leads or something. And then the 12th, nothing. And I had a hard time researching this on Google. I mean, I found some uh, obscure stuff, um, but that narrative of arson died with no explanation. They started blaming the oil companies for having like, I don't know, oil residue on the trees somehow. And that's what made all these things go up in flames so easily. But I bet it was arson. I wouldn't put it past these people. Would you put it past the people that arm ISIS and fund ISIS to do to burn million acres of wooded land in the middle of Canada? No. I don't know how many fatalities there were. No more than a handful. 
I would not put it past the people that fund and arm ISIS and train ISIS. So all of these things together, the breakdown of the production freeze, followed by two events that both affect affected production. And that was Nigeria and middle of nowhere Canada. Two isolated places, easy entrance, easy exit, or those are well-studied areas, but they are not major countries like the United States or Saudi. Imagine trying to to do this in Saudi Arabia. It would never happen. They have controls for this stuff. Imagine doing it in Russia. You start a world war. So they go to two small, isolated places that they can hide this activity. And I believe that's what they did. And if you look at the oil prices, they bottomed in February. They started rising with this uh, production freeze. Started heading back down after the breakdown of that. And then these two events put a floor right there and it's been up since. And as goes oil, so does the stock market. So they put a floor under oil, basically putting a floor under the stock market. And I think it was corruption. So that's why I said this is a little bit conspiracy for you guys. But All right, so how do I tie this back into Bitcoin? Well, um, a lot of people in the Bitcoin space, they are worried about the regulation, right? The KYC, the AML. How is that going to affect mass adoption and things, things like that? Well, I don't think we need to worry about regulation because regulation is coming. That's a foregone conclusion. They're, they're going to regulate Bitcoin in some way. Heavily, heavily regulated. But we, we don't have to worry about that because the more regulation that Bitcoin gets, the more value, valuable it will become because regulation will be more extensive for everybody. The burden of complying with these regulations will be more burdensome for everyone. And then Bitcoin will be this you know, regulatory arbitrage, it'll be more valuable. So we don't have to worry about regulation. But what we can learn from these stories of the oil market is that nation states will do whatever it takes. They will do whatever it takes. And a lot of that involves terrorism. They'll do whatever it takes, and they'll go to whatever lengths they need to go to, to keep their system alive. I mean, look, they, they, uh, they funded ISIS. They funded the Mujahideen against the uh, Soviet Union. They uh, funded the breakup of Libya. They funded the rebels in Syria. They funded the fascist, openly Nazi government now in Kiev. Against a people seeking democratic reform in the Crimea. They will go to whatever lengths they need to. And if Bitcoin gets in their way, if Bitcoin becomes a threat, there will be arrests, there will be jail, there will be rendition, there will be, unfortunately, there will be deaths. People will be killed. Maybe it's, it sounds outlandish to a lot of people out there, but maybe it's because I spend time in the military and I know what they're capable of. They don't care about life. All they care about is their policies, their economy, anything that they control. And this is at the highest echelons of government. The nation states will come for Bitcoin. 
Developers are in trouble. Miners are in trouble. I mean, the, the best thing we can hope for is a quick demise of the fiat system. And they won't have enough power to come after people and fund this terrorism. But who knows? So don't worry about regulation. That's my, that's my point. Don't worry about regulation. Worry about bullets. Worry about armies. Worry about terrorism. Andreas said years ago that Bitcoin is a weapon of mass financial destruction. And it will be treated like that in the future. They won't go quietly. They will come for Bitcoin. So you need to be prepared. At least have a plan, right? Cover your tracks a little bit. Right now, you're probably safe for the time being. But when Bitcoin's approaching, say, a trillion dollar market cap, watch out. Jail time for a lot of these Bitcoiners. And I'm scared. I'm scared. But you got to stand up for what you believe in. And I believe that Bitcoin has the ability to beat these people. So I, I might sound negative, right? That I think, oh, the nation state's coming. People are going to get killed. It's going to be all bad. Yada, yada, yada. But no, I'm at the base of it. I'm optimistic because Bitcoin will be able to beat these folks. These evil people. Bitcoin will be able to end their system if given a chance. The monetary system, which is the underpinning of all of the wars in the world and all the other evils that are done, all the social problems that welfare causes and other things cause, that's founded on this monetary system. And Bitcoin has the ability to fight back and take some of that back. So I'm overall very optimistic of the future. Anyway, that's enough for my rant this week. Uh, my name is Ansel Linder. This is Bitcoin and Markets. Thank you so much for listening. You can contact me on Twitter at Ansel Linder. You can also visit the website at BitcoinandMarkets.com. Yeah, next week, LISC and maybe Gold Standard versus Bitcoin Standard. See ya!